So today's scripture reading is going to be from John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And he filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they, set, so they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves a good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. This is the word of God. Good afternoon, everybody. It's good to see you all today and worship God with you. Thank you, Tita, for reading God's word to us. Um, Yesterday morning, uh, a wedding between a prince and his gorgeous bride, it captured the imaginations of people all over the world, myself included. I I loved it, personally. Today, I hope you'll allow your mind to travel to another wedding. There's no royalty. There are no celebrities at this wedding, at least not the kind that we're used to seeing. But people have been talking about this wedding for over 2,000 years. It was the scene of Jesus Christ's very first public miracle. He's at a wedding, at this party, the wine runs out, so he turns water into wine, and he keeps the party going. And at first, when you look at this, as James pointed out earlier, it might look more like a magic trick than a legitimate miracle. (laughs) But if you look closely, What you're going to see is that what Jesus does here is so much more meaningful than it might appear. There's a richness that we can't even look at all of it. The Gospel of John gives us seven miracles, just seven of the miracles that Jesus performed. John calls them signs, and and he's super selective about the ones that he decides to share with us. So so look at what he says, for instance, in chapter 20, this passage that we keep coming back to again and again. It says there in John 20, verse 30, Now, Jesus did many miracles or did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So there are many other signs that Jesus performed in the presence of many people. But you see why John 
writes this book and he, and he shares these specific miracles, he tells us it's so that you would see for yourself who Jesus is and receive the new life that comes through him. Now, I want us to also look at verse 11, which is at the very end of this little story that we're looking at today. Chapter 2, verse 11. It says this, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Think about this for a moment. It said his disciples believed in him. If these people were his disciples, that's because they already believed in him, no? But what happens here, when they saw what he did at this wedding, they they were left dumbfounded. They were in awe of his glory and his grace. And as a result, they believed in him more. Their their faith deepened. Their unbelief grew weaker. That's why each of us, all of us, we need to look at this story today. We all need to see Jesus here so we can see his glory and believe in him. Whether it's for the first time that we believe in him, or whether it's so that your existing belief, whatever existing belief you have, would mature, would grow deeper, Do you want that? Are you at least open to that? If you've come in here with no belief in who Jesus is, maybe even very little knowledge of who he is, are you open to and do you desire to know more? Perhaps to believe in him. And if you've already believed in him, but maybe your your faith, it feels weak, it feels fragile, he seems so distant, do you want your faith to mature and deepen? Or or at the very least, are you open to that? What I've been praying over this week is that each of us would desire that deeply and that we'd be open to it as we come to God's word. So so how do we see, because John says that when Jesus performed this miracle, he manifested, he displayed his glory. So the question we want to ask is, how does Jesus display his glory in this event? And like I said before, there are many ways, plenty of them. We're going to look primarily at just one way. Here it is. Jesus displays his glory here by showing us that he rescues us from shame. Jesus rescues people from shame. Now, you could say that differently. You could say he he covers shame or, or he takes shame away. However you want to put it, I put it this way. He rescues us from it. From heavy, burdensome, dark, debilitating shame. I want to invite you to pray with me before we get into this word. Lord, you see us. You don't look at the outward person like we do. You see inwardly. You see who we are, and we know that we've walked in here needing our faith to grow. We need to believe in you more. We need to know more of who you are, see more of who you are, and trust you more deeply. And so, and so whether, Lord, we've, we've come in here uh, with very little faith or no faith at all, Lord, would you grow? Would you mature? Would you grant faith? And Lord, some of us perhaps have come in here feeling ashamed. Ashamed of things that we've done, or maybe ashamed of things that have been done to us. Would you show us your rescuing, covering, purifying power 
to remove shame. We ask it in your name. Amen. Christ is at a wedding. It's a feast. It's in a small town named Cana, and he's there with his disciples. And it, and it may be that these disciples that he's with, it might be those same five disciples that we read about in John chapter 1 last week. There's Andrew, there's Peter, there's Philip, there's Nathaniel, and then there's this fifth disciple that doesn't get, his name doesn't get mentioned in John chapter 1, but a lot of people think that that fifth disciple is actually John himself, the author of this book. So Jesus is with perhaps those disciples and maybe others. In any case, his mother Mary is there too with him at this wedding feast. Now, if you think um, wedding feasts tend to run long, listen to this. In the first century Jewish culture, they ran up to seven days, seven days of food and wine and music and celebration. But, but at this wedding, in the middle of all of that partying, the wine runs out. And, and this is a bigger deal than you might think. Because it was the groom's responsibility to provide enough food and wine for everybody at the wedding for the full duration of the feast. And if you ran out of food or you ran out of wine, you would face extreme embarrassment. This was a shame culture. Okay, so running out of food or wine meant you would lose face. You lost your reputation. Get this, you could even be sued by your guests. So this is a defining moment for this groom. Not just because it's his wedding day, but because he has failed miserably on his wedding day. Maybe he didn't have enough money to provide enough wine, or maybe he just didn't plan well enough. Either way, he didn't live up to his clear social expectations. And, and so now he faces serious consequences for all of that. Now think about what, it, what a terrible way this is to start a marriage. Imagine what his new bride thinks of him. I wonder if she answered, like, I, I asked you and asked you again, did you get enough wine? Did you plan? You said yes. You said, don't worry about it. Imagine what his in-laws think of him. Not, not to mention the entire city. This man is a failure. So Mary, Jesus' mother, she's aware of what's going on. She tells her son... They have this very odd exchange that happens in verses 3 and 4. We're not even going to look at that today. When I preached on this passage before, I kind of described or tried to explain a little bit of what's going on there. I'm not even going to do that today. What I want us to do is jump right to verse 6 and read from verse 6. There were six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. All right? So they're stone. They call them jars in the scriptures. They're more like these big stone tubs. They were tall, thick, heavy, 120, I mean 20 to, to 30 gallons each, which means that we're looking at, what, 120 to 180 gallons of water altogether. Jesus says to the servants, fill those jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. They, they would have already had water in them, by the way, but he says fill them up to the top. Verse 8. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, he was testing it, right? He tastes it, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. 
And when people have drunk freely, then they bring out the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus saves the day. He saves the wedding by bringing out just the right gift. He knew exactly what this couple needed. Now, now many times I think that when we read this, this passage, and when I've read it in the past, I think, wow, Jesus is displaying a great deal of love and kindness towards the guests at this party. And that's absolutely true. But what I want us to see today is that he's displaying a great deal of grace and love and care for this groom. He saves the bridegroom. He provides better wine than this guy could have ever come up with. And imagine what this does for that young groom's reputation. His status has just skyrocketed. He was about to become a pariah in his community, facing possible litigation, humiliation, embarrassment, scolding from his in-laws. Instead, he's the man. What a guy. Brings out the best wine last, and better wine than we've ever tried before at any of these weddings. New Hope. When you try to figure out what to do with this passage, or, or you try to figure out how um, this applies and what it has to do with your life, I want to encourage you to start here. This is one good starting place. We are the bridegroom. You and I. We are the ones who have fallen short, and we are the ones who desperately need someone to intervene and provide what we have failed to provide. Romans 3.23 puts it this way, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's us, each of us. That's the bridegroom too. He fell short, we have fallen short. Verse 24 of Romans 3 says, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We have all fallen short, but... But we can be made right by this gift, the gift that Jesus brings. For one thing, this means that you and I don't need to be afraid to admit that we're failures. You don't need to be afraid to admit that to Jesus. And really, you don't even need to be afraid to admit that to others. This means that we, you and I, don't need to keep up appearances and pretend that we have it together. This groom did not have it together. And Jesus sees that, steps into that mess, and rescues him from the mess that he made. For some of us, our sin and our failures have filled us with shame. Shame before other people, and they fill us with shame before God. So, so we try to cover those sins up, and we try to cover up those failures. We scramble to make up for our shortcomings. We work hard to get other people and to get God to, to say, well done. Like he's a guest at the party and we need to impress him. And all the while we lose sight of this. Jesus knows your failures. He knows you're a mess. Even this past week, Jesus has seen your small acts of dishonesty and selfishness. He, he saw how you, you perhaps poorly stewarded the, the things that he gave you, like time and money. 
If your husband, he, he knows that you haven't loved your wife the way he loves the church. If you're a parent, he, he knows how unloving you've been towards your kids. You see all that too, of course. And you're ashamed of it. And you hope that no one else notices it. But whoever you are, Christ knows that this facade of having it all together is thin and it's fragile at best. And and he's willing to step into the disasters that you've created to rescue you from them. And to remove the shame that they have brought upon you. So that, look, when we confess our sins openly, it it actually glorifies Jesus. Notice this. How how is it that Jesus' glory is revealed to the disciples at this wedding? It's when they see how he responds to the failures of this inadequate, underprepared couple. His glory is revealed when their shame is revealed, and he responds to it with grace. With rescue. We miss opportunities to see Christ's glory when we hide our failure and we pretend that we have it all under control. And and, and we even make it harder for other people to admit their sins. We make it harder for other people to admit their failures when we try to keep up appearances. But when we confess our sinfulness, what does it do? It highlights the grace and glory of Jesus Christ. And it helps others to see that grace and glory for themselves and begin to admit their own failures and their own sinfulness. Jesus is, there's only one impressive person at this wedding feast. That's Jesus. And we don't need to impress him. So own your inadequacies. Own your sins. He won't shame you. He'll rescue you and cover you. For some of us, we we don't just carry shame over our sins. Some of us carry shame. We're ashamed because of what others have done to us. The way that you've been treated or hurt in, in your past maybe fills you with shame. You feel like, how could I allow this to happen to myself? You don't want people to look at you to see you. You don't want people to see the real you. Maybe you feel shame over experiences that, that were outside of your control, you, things that you could not have prevented, although you wish you could have prevented them. And, and now you feel like you're defined by those experiences. I wonder if this groom felt a little bit of that. Maybe he had done his best to prepare for this wedding, but it just wasn't enough. He didn't have enough, and now he just wants to hide. That's what shame does, isn't it? It, it, it drives us to hide ourselves from others, to hide ourselves from God. We don't want the glare of anyone upon us. Because when people look, they're going to see the one who failed. They're going to see the one who didn't live up. Maybe your parents have or had expectations of you that you haven't lived up to. 
You can't live up to them. Or maybe you haven't even met your own expectations. Maybe that's where the shame comes from. You compare yourself to others and you feel awful. Do you know how any of that feels? Do you, do you know what this feels like? I'm going to go out on a limb and, and uh, ask this question. Anyone ever have one of those public nakedness dreams? Ever? I'm, I'm not going to dwell on this. I'm going I'm to go on. But, but do you know what I'm talking about? You're at work or you're at school or you're in some public place and everything's fine. Maybe you're teaching, you're giving a talk, or maybe you're just engaging in business as usual. And all of a sudden you look down and you're not wearing any clothes and, you're, and, you, and you freak out. You've, you've been disrobed. You cannot hide. You, you have been put on display and it's absolutely horrifying and you can't wake up quickly enough. What's that about? I, I, I was doing some reading, and I think there's lots of ideas and theories on what that's about. The one that, that seems to make most sense to me is that it has something to do with fear that people will see the real you. Fear that people will know what you've done or what's been done to you. That people will either, on the one hand, see you as a fraud, or on the other hand, they'll see you as more broken than you've ever let on that you really are. Jesus moves towards people like you, the ashamed. Those who either have failed or have been failed, or both, and feel ashamed because of it, Jesus moves towards you. You are desirable to him. We see it in this Gospel of John later on when we get to John chapter 4. We're going to look at how Jesus intentionally makes a beeline towards a place where he knows there are unclean people. And he meets an unclean woman who's so ashamed that she can't even show her face in public in, 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 in the middle of the day. She has to show up in public when others aren't around. And he goes to her. And he has one of the longest conversations in the Gospels with her about her shame. And about her sin. And he brings rescue to her. We, we see it in the way that Jesus interacts with Peter later on in the gospel. His, his disgraced disciple who lied and betrayed him. And is filled with shame. And Jesus, after he resurrects from the dead, he makes a beeline for Peter. He says, you don't have to find me. I'm coming after you to cover your shame. If you're struggling in, in this way, you feel perhaps loathsome, dirty, unlovable, and, and you want to hide, you need to know that Jesus might not be who you think he is. Jesus does not, uh, he doesn't avoid eye contact with the shameful. He doesn't, he doesn't walk away. If you have experienced shame, then know that Jesus, he finds and he befriends people like you. After all, Jesus knows the power of shame. Firsthand, they tried to shame him. They stripped him and, and they propped him up 
as this failed pretend Messiah to be mocked. Isaiah 53 says, He was despised and rejected by men, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we, we esteemed him not. I love the way Ed Welch, the author, Ed Welch puts it. He says, The Christ who has been disgraced has eyes for people who have been disgraced. The Christ who has been disgraced has eyes for people who have been disgraced. In our culture, and in others, I'm sure, shame has become a kind of weapon. Someone does something awful. I see this happen. I see it happen on the internet. I see it happen on social media. Someone gets caught doing something loathsome and awful. And it gets posted online and it gets shared. And often, what's the response of people when they see this loathsome behavior? It's, let's shame this person. Let's pile on. Let's disrobe this person further. Let's share more of their shameful actions and words. And why do we do that? Because we know firsthand how powerful that is. It's so unlike Christ. Jesus sees the power of shame too, but he, he doesn't pile it on. He, he rescues us from it. He, he covers it. It's what God did in the garden when that first couple in Genesis sinned against him. And he rebukes them. And there's punishment. There are consequences, no doubt. But what does he also do? He makes clothing out of skins and he covers them. Covers the shame of that sinful couple. What is he doing here in John chapter 2? It's the same thing. He's covering the shame of another couple. The wine runs out, and Christ produces some wine that's better than what they could have ever come up with. <laughs> it even surprises the master of the feast, who is kind of like the—he's kind of like a wedding organizer. He's there, he's emceeing, he's kind of taking care of the whole thing. He says, "Man, you've saved the best wine for last." And the way that Jesus supplies this wine to keep this party going—it's scandalous. We, we don't want to speed over it. I want us to look at it. There are these six stone water tubs. 20 plus gallons of water in each one. They're, they're meant to be used in religious cleansing rituals. So, so here's how it worked. As guests came into the room, they're supposed to go to these huge water vessels and wash their hands and wash their arms. Utensils would be washed in them before and after they were used. These ancient Jews, they were obsessed with hygiene. Did you know that? God had given them laws for, for maintaining purity, but they just added a bunch of them on top of those laws. So these cleansing vessels, for instance, this is not something that God commanded them to do. They added the, it was part of the tradition of the elders, so to speak. Maybe you can relate to this obsession with, with hygiene. Do you use a lot of Purell ever? 
Do you bathe your children in it? Um, do you use, I know when you go to stores now, there's usually disinfectant wipes at the door so you can take it and you can wipe down the cart, right? Before you put your baby in it, before you grab onto that nasty germ-ridden handle. We keep baby wipes, we keep these disinfectant wipes in the car so we can clean up the kids when they get in. My son, in fact, recently told me, he said, you know, Dad, the reason that people have so many allergies today is because we're too clean. He said, our bodies have lost the ability to fight off these germs because we use so much so many cleansing products. I told him, I think I, that's just a theory. It may be true. Um, go wash your hands, I told him. Go wash your hands. So I'm not taking any chances. For these people, though, it wasn't just physical hygiene that they were obsessed with. It was a moral hygiene, moral purity. The, these huge water containers were a reminder that they were spiritually unclean. God is holy. He is pure and undefiled. In order for us to approach him, come near him, in order for us to, to, to even worship him, we need cleansing constantly. In fact, in order for us to be in fellowship together, we need to all be scrubbing clean so that we don't further defile one another. Jesus does not argue with the fact that we're unclean. He agrees 100% with that. But he takes these water vessels and he turns them into something altogether different. And, and that should actually shock us. Just a few years later, Jesus would be at another meal with his disciples. He, he'd, he'd serve wine again. But at that time, he'd say, as he served the wine, this is my blood shed for you. You know these words. That's the way he says it in Luke and and Matthew says, this is my blood in the new covenant, and it's, it's poured out for many, he says. And he goes on, he says, here's why my blood was poured out. Symbolized by this wine, it was poured out for the forgiveness of sins. You see what Jesus is doing back at this wedding? Among a million other things, here's one thing he's doing. With this simple, miraculous act, Jesus removed this made-up, Ritual that says, wash yourself clean, scrub, rinse, repeat, scrub, rinse, repeat. And he says, forget that. Here's something better. That water never cleaned you in the first place. It's true, we need to be clean, there's no doubt. We are impure. But now Jesus is here. And, and, and he cleanses with his own blood. That's the reality, one of the realities that this wine is pointing us to. Forget the ritualistic cleansing, whatever your ritualistic cleansing might look like. Listen to what John says. This very same author, he wrote in a letter called 1 John, we call it 1 John. He says there, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. I wonder, if, I wonder if John remembered that wedding in Cana when he wrote those words. Certainly he remembered what he saw on the cross. And then, and then years later in Revelation chapter 7, he gets a glimpse, the same author, same guy, gets this vision of what's coming in the future. And he writes of people from every tongue and tribe and nation who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. They're pure, no more shame, 
no more dishonor. They can stand fully confident before the holy God because they are completely clean. As we stand here today, maybe we have cleansing rituals. Things that you do either to make yourself feel clean and unashamed or things that you do to distract yourself from your uncleanness and shame. Maybe you play mental tricks on yourself. Maybe you do particular religious duties and you feel like if I do these things, if I read my Bible enough, or if I pray enough, or if I go to church enough times this month, or if I, I do certain things, if, if I do certain good things to outweigh the shameful thing, then, then maybe somehow I can escape this burdensome sense of shame. Maybe, maybe you turn to impulsive, addictive behaviors because they distract you from your shame. But then you found that they only keep bringing more shame. And so you repeat the cycle. Whatever cleansing or distracting rituals you might use, Jesus is here saying they're all useless. And he's saying that by his death on the cross, he cleanses from all sin. And he does this for anyone, anyone who will simply admit their uncleanness and believe in him for cleansing. As Jesus sat at this feast, he still had a few years to go before his crucifixion. That's why, by the way, he says to his mother, in, um, back in verse 4, he says, um, uh, the hour has not yet come. Often when that phrase shows up in the Gospels, John, he says it often. It usually means, or always means, really, the time for my death, my crucifixion, is not here yet. But it was coming. And Jesus knew that it would be there soon enough. And with this sign that he performed at that wedding, Jesus is foreshadowing that death. He's, he's announcing the arrival of something so much better than all of our scrambling to tidy ourselves up and to cover ourselves up and to hide. He's announcing the arrival of something that brings true and permanent cleansing, something that, that brings true rescue from sin and from shame. But you know what this story also shows us? Jesus doesn't just take away sin and shame. He replaces it with blessing and joy. In the New Testament, wine, like I said, is often a symbol of Christ's blood. Right? We see that at the Lord's table, communion. But throughout the entire Bible, wine is also a symbol of some other things, including this. It's a symbol of abundant blessing and abundant joy. The, the prophet Joel he says, and in that day, the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills will flow with milk. You see what he's saying? He's pointing to the future, and he's saying, abundance and joy are coming. The, the prophet Amos, he puts it this way. He says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with it. These verses speak of the day when Christ returns, and God's kingdom arrives in full. 
Wine means that things are good. Wine means there's no lack. Wine means there's abundance. It points to the true happiness that will come when God makes all things new. And at his plan to restore fallen humanity and to restore this fallen world is finally fulfilled. You see, water into wine, it's not a magic trick. Water into wine is an announcement that God's kingdom is coming. It has arrived when Jesus arrived, and it is coming in fullness when he returns. And in that kingdom, sin and shame are out. And blessing and joy are in. Have you ever noticed how much the Bible talks about food? Like I said, God's kingdom blessings are described as as these delicacies, right? Um, uh, uh, Wine and, and milk and honey and dates. Bread. But, but also, coming, coming to God, coming near to God, is often described as coming to a table, sitting down with him, invited to eat with him. Why? Why is nearness to God described in that way? It's because we know that eating around the table together, that, that's intimate. There's... That's family and friendship and welcome. There's more than that. You see, God wants us to know that his presence means that we will have everything we need to fill us. We sang about this just a few minutes ago. He satisfies our appetites so that to know Jesus truly is to be filled It's to drink deep of his spirit. It's to taste and see that the Lord is good. That's why hundreds of gallons of wine at a wedding is the perfect symbol to mark the arrival of Jesus. Because on the one hand, it points to cleansing by his blood, no doubt. But on the other hand, it points to abundant, delicious gladness. Jesus doesn't just rescue us from sin and shame. He replaces that sin and shame with blessing and joy in abundance. That starts now, but it does not end now. It just begins now, but it continues into eternity. And it gets bigger and better as we go on. Jesus doesn't just bring a bottle to the party. He brings these huge vessels. (laughs) And then he fills them to the very rim so that even as, as that even as those servants tried to reach some out, it must have spilled over the edges. I really like weddings. That's why I watched uh, Harry and, and Meghan tie the knot yesterday. I really enjoy going to them. I feel like officiating weddings is one of the best parts of being a pastor. Maybe it is the very best for me anyway. It's awesome. Jesus likes weddings too. They are a, a foreshadowing of the relationship between him and his church, between Jesus and his people. And he knows that full well. He invented weddings and marriage for that very reason. That's what Ephesians 5 tells us. And, and wedding feasts in particular had a, had a very important place in Christ's mind. 
Because you see, Jesus Christ's mission culminates in a wedding. It's right there in Revelation 19. It says there in verse 7, this is again the same author, John. He's getting a vision of what's to come in the future. And he says, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. And the angel said to me, this is verse 9, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper. You hear that? Blessed are those who are invited to this marriage supper. People would have died to get to that wedding yesterday. It looked great. Rather bougie, rather, rather, well, it, it, it looked fun. And what a blessing to be there. But blessed are those who are invited to this marriage supper of the Lamb. And then he said to me, these are the true words of God. You see what this is telling us? All of history climaxes in a wedding. A bigger and better wedding than what I and some of you watched yesterday. The, the royal, I thought of it this way, the royal wedding that some of us watched, it was, it was kind of a break from some of the tragic, sad news that we've been hearing and seeing. It, it provided a kind of like brief distraction from the fact that we're killing ourselves and that our children aren't safe in school and that our society's a mess. For a second, we're transported to this wedding where everything's beautiful and clean and there doesn't even look like there's any shame. Everything looks pristine and planned and glorious. And then the wedding's over and we go back to the fact that we live in a broken society where we're afraid for our own lives. You see, the royal wedding was a distraction from sad news, but the marriage of the lamb will be the end of sad news. The end of all tragedy. And believing in Jesus now translates us into a place at that table where every tear is wiped away and every source of danger disappears and every bit of shame is a distant memory. Jesus came to to bring blessing and joy, and, and that begins now, but it just increases as time goes on into eternity. Remember, remember what the, the master of this feast said? He said, you, everyone serves the good wine first, but you kept the good wine until now. I think that's something of what Jesus does. He brings us blessing and joy now. He erases shame now in small ways, powerful but small ways, but he's saving the good wine for Later, if you're in relationship with Jesus, then it only gets better. And it also means that your relationship with him is, is a covenant that he will not break. You are his bride by faith. Some of you say amen to that. Some of you, or maybe inside you say amen. Some of you are a little uncomfortable with that, that you are a bride of Christ. Get used to it. If you have believed in Jesus, get used to it. You are his bride, beloved and beautiful, and without blemish before him. There's comfort and there's peace in that once you get over the awkwardness. I'm talking to you brothers especially. 
Jesus' attitude towards you is not unpredictable. Jesus' attitude towards you does not fluctuate based on how ashamed you feel today about what happened yesterday. His steadfast love endures forever. In a moment, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. And this is not a meal for perfect people. On the contrary, this is a meal for people who are deeply displeased with themselves. This is, this is a meal for people who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And this is not a ritual that we come to when we take this bread and this cup that somehow cleanses us. It doesn't do that. But each trip to this table, Jesus reminds us of how he was broken to restore and rescue us from sin and shame. And with each trip to this table, Jesus reminds us that there is a better feast with him ahead. So I invite you to pray with me. Jesus, we are looking to you. The founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before you, you endured the cross, you despised the shame, you rejected the shame, and now you are seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Father, give us grace to believe in your Son, to reject the shame. Holy Spirit, give us eyes to see the joy that is set before us. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.